Hi everybody, welcome to Wrong Term Memory. As always, it is me, Jack. And it is me, Colin. Hello everybody and hello, Jack. Yeah, how are you, Colin? I'm good, mate. I'm really good at actually looking forward to this. Um, we are, I, I don't want to say we're famous for, because we're not famous for anything, but we're probably we're, we're probably known for our lack of prep and our lack of uh, research and uh, the lack of effort we go into before most pods that we record. But today we're doing a movie pod and I've seen the film in the cinema and watched it twice in the last 16 hours or so. So for once, I'm going to say I am prepped out my mind, mate. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one as well because I think this is the first time I've ever did a film review on Wrong Term Memory. Um, some of you will know us from the other podcast that we do. We've done a few film reviews over there. But we're not massive film buffs, so we've decided to get a little bit of help. And this is the first guest that I think we've ever done that isn't from another podcast, basically. And the reason I decided to ask this guest on was I've read um, a few of his blogs and stuff like that. And he seems to know know his films, so I reached out and decided to ask Hugh on Hugh McStay, uh, Angry Scotsman 81 on Twitter, um, if you are on Twitter. Um, how are you, Hugh? Hi, alright Jack, alright guys, um, thanks very much for having me on, it's uh, any excuse I can get to kind of talk about films, I'll jump on MD's podcast, so yeah, thanks for, for having me on. Yeah, no worries man, like, the stuff that I've read of yours has been more to do with sort of horror genre, stuff like that, is that, is that sort of where you would say your, um, not loyalties lie, but you know what I mean? Is that your sort of favourite know, It's definitely like my niche. Um, so I, I work as a staff writer for the London Horror Society. And although that sounds by its very name really London-centric, it's not at all. It's just where the, the company's based. Um, so it's brilliant. We get access to like screeners for all the new horror films on like Shudder, a couple of the new things that are coming out. So we always get a, a, an early look at horror movies. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I've, I've done most of my writing. Um, obviously that's kind of my, my professional writing and I do a lot of like, um, do a lot of creative writing as well. I think I've published about maybe 25, 30 short stories in the last five years. So kind of, I think every, every professional writer is a frustrated creative writer at one point or another. So, you know, hoping to make that work at some point. Well, thanks for joining us, Hugh. And like I said, before we started the call, I might call you Shug, um, <laughs> because we are, we're obviously a Glasgow-based Glasgow, podcast. Yeah, Glasgow. yeah, most of our <laughs> listeners are from Glasgow, so they'll, they'll understand that, that Hugh, for some reason, um, gets turned into Shug. Do you know the reason behind that at all, Hugh? So, I asked my dad, who who's also a Shug, um, and his explanation was, oh, it's short for Hugh. I was like, no, it's not that. It's no, it's really no. So yeah, no, I've never actually got to the bottom of the of the sort of the etymology of it, so I've no clue where it is. But yeah, my dad was adamant that it's because it's short for Hugh. It's like no, no. I I almost I almost gave you the answer there, All and right, just okay. before and just before I said it, I realised it was utter nonsense. Um, I was I, I was going to say Shug was Hugh backwards because <laughs> <laughs> right. I said ah it's just Hugh back then. I, then I thought about it for a second. I thought actually hold on a minute, it's not. Well, I've been called backwards several times, but no, because of Shug. No, uh, that's the kind of maybe I'm thinking of the whole uh, Senga and Agnes thing, Agnes, isn't aye. it? Maybe aye. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's and it, but it is. It, it follows everybody in Glasgow who's ever who, called Hugh who's ever been born. It's just one of those things. That is indeed. Right, we're here to speak about Parasite then. I watched it for the first time about four hours ago. Just finished it about an hour and a half ago. Well, about an hour ago. So, my first impressions, Colin and Hugh, were that I was not blown away by this film. But I really enjoyed it. I liked its sort of genre 
spanningness. That's not a word, but you understand what I mean. There's lots of different genres in there, including a little bit of horror, which um, Hugh would be into. So I was not blown away with it. I think if I go back and watch it a second time, without concentrating so much on the dialogue, I might be able to see deeper, in inverted commas, into the film. But Colin, you were, um, you've been a fan since the the minute you walked out that cinema the first time you seen it, yeah? Yeah, I loved it. I found it captivating, basically. Um, I went to see it in the cinema, uh, knowing pretty much that it was very highly rated, but not really knowing anything about the story, um, which I think is probably quite a good way of seeing this film. And I loved it. And for some reason, you know what it is, I've not went back and watched it since the cinema until yesterday. Um, don't really know why. Probably just get too many other things in my plate to be watching and stuff like that. So I watched it last night. I think I put it on about midnight and it finished about half past two and just went to my bed, blown away by it again. And I finished work at four o'clock today and stuck it on again today. And I've sat and watched it for the last two hours or so. Um, I just think it's excellent. I think it's shot beautifully. I think the they, they they tell the story almost just in the shots, like the the whole juxtaposition of the the high class family and the low class family is evident in every part of the film. Even as basic stuff as the rich ones live up a hill and the poor ones live down the hill, so they're looking up at these rich people in every possible way. Um, I just think it's fantastic, and, and like Jack said, it has got so many genres to it. It's it's a thriller. There is a little bit of horror there. Um, there's even a wee bit of dark comedy and stuff to it as well. And there's also, it's got something to say. You know, there's a little bit of a political message going out in there as well. And then you've obviously got the whole Korean political side of things that comes into it as well. And the, some Korean stereotypes and the Korean way of life and Korean people are very, very, very different to us in a way. And that's also interesting. So, yeah, I I love this. This is in my top five, I would say, of all time. Um, maybe even top three. I just think it's phenomenal. So you'd really, really highly rate it then. Hugh, just before we came on, I think we mentioned before we went into lockdown, it was maybe one of, if not the last film that you've seen before um, we got put into house jail. What were your, can you remember back, what were your initial thoughts the first time you seen it then? Right, so I think a bit like Colin, um, I went into it not knowing anything about the story, kind of went out of my way to avoid as much as possible. But I was aware that it was incredibly well regarded because obviously it won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Um, it was, in fact, I actually think I saw it maybe just after it won the Oscar because I think it was around that time because it was released a lot later in the UK than it was in other parts of the world. I'm certain that it won the Oscar already before I saw it. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, I went in knowing very little about it and genuinely one of the, the, the most astounding films I've ever seen. Um, it stays with you long after you've seen it. It's one of those films where this was my third watch and I feel like each time I appreciate it a bit more, you know, and I think what you what you said at the start, Jack's absolutely spot on. When you go back to it, you'll find more in it. Like every time you go back to it, you, it's, like, it's like peeling another layer of the onion. There's more going on with every rewatch. And Bon Joon-ho, the director, described it as um, a comedy without clowns, a tragedy without villains. And that's like just, it's such a perfect encapsulation of, of what's happening. And and as you said, Colin, in terms of the genre, I mean, what what the hell do you, do you describe it as? You know, it's, it's got a little bit of everything. It's it's funny, it's all, it's it's witty, but it's also quite broad at times as well. And then it's at, at the heart, there's this really dark thriller that seems to be constantly bubbling away, threatening to spill over into the rest of the film. And 
I mean, I, I, every time I see it, I have the same thought. Do you guys, have you ever seen um, Inside Number Nine, the British show? I've never, I know what you're talking about, but I've never watched an episode of it. And Inside Number Nine is um, it's, it's one of my favourite shows, and it's one of those ones like week to week, you don't know what genre you're getting, you don't know if it's a comedy, a farce, a horror, you don't know what you're getting, and every week it, it's packed with some really dark twists that you generally don't see coming. And, and this felt like an extended sort of Korean episode of Inside Number Nine. Um, it does that thing where it fluctuates wildly in tone, but it still keeps itself serious within its own world. You know, it doesn't break the rules of the world that it's setting up for you. Um, but yeah, absolutely adore it. I think it's terrific. And I think I'd probably agree with you, Colin. It'd probably be in my, definitely in my top 10 of all time. Um, and there's few films of the last maybe five years that have managed to kind of get there, but that's definitely one of them. One of the things that I still think about, about the film, and... I don't think I'll ever get a definitive answer answer to this. I might get the director's answer one day, but I'll never get my answer, is exactly what in this film is the parasite. Because there's literally so many people and so many things and so many theories about what is the actual parasite of this film. Because is it is it the behaviour of the rich people towards the poor people? Is it the opposite of that? Is it the plan that the... the, the, the Parks tried to do to the Kims, or the Kims tried to do to the Parks. Is it just the idea of life over there and the, the difference in society? Is uh, there's so many things that you could say that's what is the that's why it's called Parasite. But yeah. the actual definitive one, I still don't know, and I don't think I ever will agree on it. I think, um, but I think that's that's purposeful. You know, I think the director's it layers it much like the film itself. It's layered with so many meanings. You know, uh, and you're right. It's like everyone in this film is a parasite in some way, shape, or form, depending on your point of view or which side of the sort of the social strata you're sitting on. And I think even it's even a comment on uh, the Korean lifestyle. You know, and the fact that there is such a disparity in wealth. I mean, Christ, we think we've got it bad in the UK, which we do, right? But like to, compared to a country like that, you know, you've got people who are literally living in sewage water. You know, every time it rains, and then like literally two or three miles up the road in these ostentatious, gorgeous houses. Um, so yeah, it's like I mean, the, the system itself is a parasite that eats itself, and it just. Yeah, it, it's it's got so many different angles, hasn't it? That's probably why it hits so hard and why so many people do rank it so highly. Critics, yourselves, um, it just sort of, it does sort of transcend. You've got that social commentary there, obviously, about the, the, the rich and the poor, which every, nearly every nation in the world or, or every cinema goer can relate to in some sort of way. That sort of distrust of wealth. Um, we've done a, a Squid Game podcast. There's sort of commentary about capitalism there but I think you mentioned it there Hugh, there's there's no there's no clear goodies and baddies here at all, the, the Kims and the Parks like the Parks aren't a vile family, the, the rich family aren't this grotesque family they've they've bought their house, we'll get into the pot in a little minute but they've bought their house off of a an architect basically They've not bought it out of ghostness. They, they care about their children. They want their daughter to pass her exams. They want the, the kid to um, get the best of his artistic abilities or they want to sort of dig down and make sure there's nothing wrong with him. They're not a bad family. They, they treat their drivers right. They, but at the same time, they will lie behind their backs and scheme. And that sort of mirrors what the, the poorer family are doing, the, um, the Kim family, lying, scheming their way through life. It's just... I think that's maybe why it's it's hit so hard because everybody can sort of relate to that. How how important do you think that is in a film is 
kind of relatability because obviously at setting career we don't quite understand the living in the basements, they're getting 15 minutes of sunlight a day, etc. We don't get that, but we do understand the dichotomy between rich and poor. Everybody knows that, surely. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and I think... Um... Just what you're saying there about the about there being no real villains in it, I think that's I think that's spot on. I mean, the, the Kims outwardly look quite are quite devious, and you know it's all all about subterfuge and finding the sort of worming their way into the house. But under that first that surface level of, sort of deviousness, like they're they're so close as a family, they they love each other so much, and it does feel like the further down the social ladder you go in this film, like the, the closer the relationships are. All the way down to, and we'll get to it when we get to it, the the maid and her husband. You know, it's like the, for whatever ills and whatever weirdness is going on, you can see how much they absolutely love each other and are clinging on to each other. Whereas you go further up the, the ladder to the the parks, and again, surface level, they're lovely people. You know, they seem quite nice, as you said. He's good to his driver, chats away to him, but under that surface, like. Pretty bad. I think they're, they're they're pretty bad bastards at points. Maybe not the mum so much, but the, the dad in particular. I mean, he keeps going on about how you know it's like he, he's a good guy, but you know if he ever crosses the line, you know, and gets too familiar with me, you know that sort of thing. And and it's like I think that that riles people up, and and that is something that's so recognisable, isn't it? When you when you work with people who maybe perceive themselves as you're better, like they're okay with you to a point, but at a certain point, you know, people expect their place in society and they expect people to respect that. So yeah, it's, it's it's really difficult to kind of come down on one side or the other. They certainly don't deserve what ultimately happens. But there does feel, I feel like the whole film has an inevitability about it. Like that final act, which we'll get to, that final act feels like it's it's coming from the opening minutes. It just feels like you're building up to it and the tension in the film is building and building and building to that release point towards the end. Yeah, I did feel like something terrible was going to happen. Right, I tell you what, Colin, we'll just sort of go through the story, I suppose. So Let's start where all stories start, Colin, at the beginning. So what's sort of happening here? Give us a, a brief overline of this sort of what's going on here. Well, your introduction is the Kim family. Um, basically father, mother, son and daughter. And they're living in what looks like a pretty small apartment building or basement apartment building. Um, you can actually see the pavement and people walking through their windows up high on the roof. It gives you an idea of just how low down they are. And you can tell they're quite poor based on their surroundings, based on what's in the house, and based on the fact that they seem to be making a living out of folding pizza boxes. Um, it's not folding pizza boxes particularly well. Um, one of the early scenes is them getting a, a penalty of 10% of their wages for not folding them properly and for wasting some of the boxes. Um, however, there's a, a bit of an apparent, I suppose, inspirational character, uh, a guy called Minhyuk, uh, who is a friend of the son's, and uh, he turns up and uh, presents the family with a rock, um, a scholar's rock, which is a symbol of wealth or incoming wealth in that country. Um, he's leaving abroad uh, to go study, go to university, and um, he's got a job at the time as an English tutor for a high-to-do family. And he suggests to the son that he could perhaps take over that with a little bit of help from him in terms of a recommendation and uh, some fake credentials. And um, so the scam and the the basically the plot of the film begins. Yeah, you mentioned there. I, I want to speak about that. The 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 gift, the big massive gift, the big massive rock that comes into these people's lives as a gift. 
Normally, um, it's left to the critics to say that is a metaphor for X, Y, or Z. But they actually mentioned the film. Uh, the the son says, "Wow, that's so metaphorical," and that's something that kind of made me laugh. I thought that was quite funny, like to actually just put that into the film and get a character to say that out loud. Whereas Mark Kimmel would be sitting saying that is so metaphorical. The the boy says it. I, I really like that, and it is it is metaphorical. And I think the director said that he did that on purpose because the the gifting of those stones is something that was for older generations. So younger generations might not have understood why what it meant anyway, so they decided to explain it. Um, but I find that, find that quite interesting. You know, it's something you don't see a lot as on-screen characters explaining what, what is metaphorical and what's not. Yeah, the, the rock itself is quite interesting throughout the film, isn't it? Because obviously, as you said, it's a symbol of sort of wealth, but obviously the weight of it is also a symbol of the sort of the pressures and strain of trying to carry those expectations. And then on top of that, like there's a real ambiguity about how real the rock is as well. Like when the um, when the when the flood happens later in the film, I mean the the rock floats. It's floating. floating. Yeah, yeah, it's the implication floating. is that this is just like a knockoff that he's given him as well. So it just adds to the whole thing. Like adds another layer to the metaphor, doesn't it? Like all these aspirations that you're going for, all these things that you're pinning your hopes on, don't really mean anything. And when you dig into it, you know, in the middle of it, it's just empty. There's nothing there. Well, that's it. That's it. Now, the um, I'm not going to attempt the name, so we'll just call him the the son of the Kim family. He gets the job as the English tutor and manages to persuade the park mother that the son, um, they're looking for an art tutor, I think. So he decides to get his sister in by lying and saying that he's his cousin's friend or something similar to that. So she gets the job as that. So that's two of them parasitically entered into the host. Colin, um, explain how the... Because I quite enjoyed it. This is where it's... It's darkly comic, this this whole this the, I would say maybe the first 35, 40 minutes of the film is is more comic than the rest of it. So how I think there's a turning point, uh, and it's when the maid gets fired, but we'll get there. How does the how does the dad and mum um get into the get into the park's life? So the so the children are quite happy in their tutor roles. Um they're realising this is the place to be. What can we do to bring the rest of the family in? Um after her first shift tutoring um the young boy. Uh, the daughter is offered a lift home from the from Mr. Park's um, chauffeur, he's, and, he, and he's Ben's, as they call it, and um, she takes the journey home, and um, she has either, I don't know if it's premeditated or if she has a sudden thought in the car, and um, she slides her panties off in the back of the car and uh, stashes them into one of the pockets on the back of the, of the passenger seat in the front, um, knowing full well that Mr. Park would come across that because that's the seat that he sits in. And that's exactly what happens a day or so later. He finds these in the car, um, a man of his standing, his morals and his outlook on his property and what should be done and what shouldn't be done and things that belong to him is appalled. Um, not appalled enough to bring it up himself and to sack the guy himself. Um, he gets his wife to do that. Um, and the the young chauffeur ends up sacked out of a job. And that was probably that was probably one of the first real-world impacts on somebody who's not a main character getting fucked over by these guys out with the kind of main story and uh, very quickly they devise a plot to get rid of the housekeeper um, based around a allergy she has to peaches 
Um, so they shave uh, the peaches, they trim the, the hair of them off of it, and on a couple of occasions they walk past her, scatter the hair of the peaches onto her. She has asthma-like uh, reactions to this, which they pass off as her having tuberculosis. And um, that, to this family, is just an unbearable thought that someone could be in their house having TB, spreading those germs about, and probably worse for them, the thought of people knowing that they're the family with a TB housekeeper. So she sent off into the rain as well with her suitcase. And Mr. Kim, the chauffeur, has an idea of somebody he knows who would be a good housekeeper. They, they make, get a business card made up. He passes the business card to Mr. Park. They've made sure this business card is very fancy. Um, American Psycho, Mr. Bateman, Patrick Bateman, would be proud of this one, I think. Um, he's impressed by the card. That sells the company to him. And the next thing you know it, the mother is in the house as the housekeeper. And this whole family are now in there and um, pulling off this long con. Well, that's it now. I I think the the maid getting sacked is the, the sort of first major turn in the film, let's say. It's, it's up until then, like, okay, the driver's been sacked, but you don't know much about him. But you've seen the maid, the way she interacts with the child. She's a, a friendly character within. She takes care. She goes out the... She goes out the back where the mother is sleeping, which might suggest we'll maybe get to that later about drug abuse. We don't know. We'll see. Um, but that is where it takes the, the the most sinister turn is putting a woman's life on the line to get in, get into this family. Now, the first time you've seen this, you, what are your, can you remember what you're sort of feeling about the film, sort of a third of the way through? Yeah, I mean, at this point, it was very much like, I kind of thought, oh, it's it's a it's a caper movie. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's like it's it's like a a dark comedy. Um, you know, they're going to get found out along the way. That that's that's where we're going. And I was kind of I was enjoying it for what it was. And again, because you can see the the subtext in the film very often becomes text really quickly. You know, it's like you can see exactly what the director's trying to get you to look at, and you can see that you know the the horrendous disparity in their social situations is you know is so clear and it, that's that's what you think that's what the film is that's what we're doing and like you said you you reach that moment uh, in the mid at the midpoint of the film when the the maid's gone they've effectively taken over the house uh, without the the park family really knowing that they've taken over the house and then it all just goes bonkers i mean the 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 next act is properly one of the most amazing maybe 20 minute segments I've ever seen in the cinema, just in terms of tension, um, in terms of plotting. And genuinely, I would defy anybody to tell me that they knew where that was going. Like when when the maid rings the doorbell in the middle of the night, which signals the beginning of the change, no one knows what's coming next. The, um, the tension began for me, actually, the minute the parks went camping. Because as soon as, as soon as they started relaxing, as soon as they got the alcohol out, the drinks out, making a bit of a mess and just chilling out as if it was their house. Yeah. I'm starting to figure out what's going to go wrong. How are they going to get caught? What's going to go happen? And I think, honestly, from that point until the end of the film, the tension just keeps getting risen and risen and risen. And it somehow manages to keep it up until it reaches this, like you say, this like 20-minute crescendo of madness. <laughs> and but, it, but it's never like slapstick. It's never ridiculous. It's The thing about this film is, we say it's horror, we say it's this, we say it's that. It's all believable, though. It's all nothing. It's not a boogeyman. It's not a vampire. It's 
proper real life horror that could happen, and I think that that helps build the tension because it's relatable. See, I, I think it it maybe took me a little bit longer to transition from what I felt was going to be like you guys have mentioned this sort of darkly comic film into the it's a sort of psychological thriller like. What's the film with Robin Williams where he's a cameraman and he ends up staying in somebody's, he's spying on the family the whole time. One hour photo. So that's kind of similar in uh, there's people in your house you don't know they're there, right? That, that's like one of the scariest things to imagine ever is people being in your house and you have no idea they're there. But because of what had come before, I was kind of, I found it difficult to then transition into the the, the actual horror of what was happening. I, I kind of was stuck in a sort of not jovial mood, but sort of more light-hearted than the actual situation would call for. But yeah, um, obviously there's a big massive rainstorm and the parks decide to come home early. The maids come in, she's went downstairs. So this is the thing that you mentioned, Hugh, nobody sees coming. So tell us what's happening here in the film. So yeah, the, as you said, the uh, the Kims are enjoying uh, a good session, pretty much, <laughs> sitting up in the, the, rich, uh, the rich folks' house. They're drinking their expensive alcohol. Um, and then all of a sudden the doorbell rings and it's effectively the middle of the night. You're talking, I think it's meant to be like um, near, near enough midnight by this point. And so they hide out the way as best they can because the only person who's meant to be in the home is the maid herself, the mum of the family. Everyone else is meant to be away, you know, doing their own thing. And it turns out it's the old maid that they fired um, who's at the door. And she says, oh, you know, I've, I've I had to leave in such a hurry. I just, I left something in the basement. You know, could you let me in? I'll, I'll be two minutes. I'll just pick up what I'm getting and then I'll go. And as we said, she, they let her into the house and she goes down to the basement and she's down there far too long. And then what happens next? Is, this is hilarious. Yeah. This bit when she could like, I, I burst out laughing. Sorry, yeah. right, go. But it's funny though, isn't it? Because it's like when they realise that she'd been down there too long, I remember in the cinema like, almost holding my breath as they were going downstairs because I was just thinking, what are they going to find? What What is actually happening here? What's coming? And then, yeah, like you said, you get there and she's wedged herself in the corner of the room. <laughs> At a 90 degree ah, angle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, against the wall in this massive, massive unit that she's trying to shift. And it's like, see when you first see that scene, I don't know what you think, that, guys, like, when you first look at it, you almost, it takes you maybe two or three seconds for your eyes to acclimatise to what you're looking at. It's like, yeah. where, she, where is she? What's she doing? How did she get there? She shouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> so yeah, so she's trying to push this thing out the way, um, and she gets the family. She gets the, the 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 new maid, who's the mother of the of the Kims, to come and help her. And they move this massive unit aside, and behind there is a door. And the way she puts on the way she falls and bounces off is what's <laughs> But again, like, when, when that door's revealed, I remember like the pit of my stomach absolutely falling. But I think that's maybe because I've been conditioned to watching too many like horrifying horror films where, you know, sub-basements are never a good thing in a horror film. You see a sub-basement, something awful's about to happen. So that that's kind of what I was prepped for. You just think, oh, God, well, th- this is what, you know, people were talking about when they said this film goes off in the direction you don't expect. So they, they follow, the, uh, they follow the, the old maid downstairs and you discover that living in the sub-basement of the basement is the old maid's husband. And he's been there for, I think, is it three years? Four years, years, I think. Four years, years, three months and 17 days. (laughs) So he's been living there because he's trying to avoid uh, paying back some loan sharks who he owes a huge debt to. 
And uh, it's, it's, it said early in the film, actually, that the, the maid who was in the house to begin with, with the parks, was actually the original maid of the Dutch architect who built the house as well. So she's been there for years, which is, which is why the, uh, <laughs> the husband's been able to hide out here. And again, you start thinking back early in the film, don't you? Because there's loads of, like, when the uh, when Mr. Kim is driving Mr. Park and they're talking about the maid and he says, oh, you know, she's a good maid, but, you know, she just eats so much food. It's almost like she's eating for two sometimes. And they kind of laugh <laughs> and joke about it. Right, okay. And you're like, Christ, yeah, that's where that's been going. That's what she's that's been doing. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so off the wall. And, you know, they then have this weird standoff where both families, you know, both the maid and her husband, who want to continue this charade and they want, they, they, they want to try and enlist the new maid's help to try and keep him fed and keep him alive and hidden. And then she discovers that the whole family are there and records them um, interacting with each other as mother and father, brother and sister. And so then they start to threaten and try and blackmail the uh, the, the Kim family uh, into doing what they've said and they're threatening to uncover what's what's you know what's been going on. And then in the midst of all this lunacy, uh, the phone rings and uh, it turns out that it's the parks and they're on their way back uh, because of the huge rainstorm. They've decided to cancel their trip and they're coming back in the middle of the night. And it's just, again, the tension in that scene. See if even if we'd got, if that was happening and we hadn't had the stuff in the basement, the tension in that scene would have been almost unbearable anyway as they try and, you know, scramble desperately to get everything tidied up and get out of the house before they get back. And then you add this other layer of these you know, interlopers who have been living in the basement. It's unreal. And that tension that from that moment on, I don't think disappears at all for the rest of the film. I think you're right, Colin. It's like, it's right there from the rest of the movie. And you, because it's going off on this really weird narrative run, you can't, you can't tell where it's going next. And you don't know, well, is is it a comedy still? Have have we moved right into pure thriller territory? Is it a horror? Is there, you know, are there more things to be unveiled? It's, it's terrifying and horrible. And it just, that it can maintain that level for the next like half hour, 45 minutes is unbelievable. What I mean, the director, I I mean, he's a terrific director. I've seen quite a few of his films. He's great in pretty much everything that he's put together so far. I've got a bit of a soft spot for uh, Snowpiercer. I think I know it's his his big uh, English language movie, but generally, I, I think he's a terrific director. But yeah, this is this is the work of a genius to be able to maintain that tension. I mean, what did you think, Jack? Obviously, you said that you you know you didn't quite get on with the film as much as Colin and I did. How did that reveal play for you? Right about this point, I'm still the the things that I'm picking up on are still more of the comedic side of things, the sort of farce, it's complete farce at a point. Like, I burst out laughing when the old maid is coming up the stairs and her face just appears out of the darkness and the park mother is there and the kid mother just kicks her down the stairs. And in my notes, I wrote, farce leading to death because I thought she definitely died with the, the she cracked her head yeah. at the bottom of the stairs and I thought, right, she's dead. That's where the... The, the commotion is really going to come out, how they get that body out of there and how they explain away where she is. I kind of thought that's where it might have been heading, but turns out she she didn't die. But yeah, I'm still a little bit confused. Maybe it's because I've not... I'm not a massive film buff, right? So I don't, I don't watch a hell of a lot of films. So maybe I'm just a little bit untrained and a little bit confused, to be honest, about what's... where I'm meant to be focusing, what's... Because it's like, like I said, it's so dark what's happening. 
but the way it's shot, the 90 degree angle, the bouncing off of the, the ottoman, the noise she makes when she's down the stairs and then kicking her down the stairs and the way she rolls down the stairs is even funny. Yeah, yeah. It's like a roly-poly down the stairs. <laughs> um, so again, I'm a little, I'm just, I'm a little bit all over the place here, Colin, but it's, um, it's all over the place. <laughs> what did you feel about the relationship between uh, the maid and her husband down there with uh, the milk bottle and stuff like that? It just seemed a little bit strange to me. Um, yeah, it was almost like a, she was mothering him a wee bit in some ways, yeah, wasn't little, she? But, yeah. but to, I, we're not quite sure of the time scale for since she was sacked to when she came back. Um, how got, long he's been down there? I would. Sorry, I, she still looks like she's got allergies. Like when she appears at the door, or is she just drunk? Because I, in my head, there's been there's been months past here. So I, I I don't think it's been as long as that because. Yeah. The um the metal plate that's underneath the the huge sort of unit they're trying to move is what's stopping him from coming up and getting food himself because he says that he's been trapped oh, down there. Like, since she was right, fired. okay, right. So it, it, it's it can't be any more than maybe a, a week or so, maybe two weeks since she's been out of the house because he would have died of malnutrition down there with no food or water. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, it, I don't think it's been that long, but um. I think what you're saying, Jack, is spot on. Like, how do how how are you meant to react to that that whole scene? And, and that's what I love about it. I mean, I've seen so many people say so many different things about it because I don't think there is a way that you're meant to react to it. And it, it, there's so much going on. And yeah, I think I think it is quite a legitimate response to just laugh at how utterly insane it all is. I think it's a film where you you've been having thoughts all during it about where your where your allegiances lie. Or what's important and what isn't is is the main thing of this film. The fact that these this family have managed to lift themselves up and get themselves positioned in this house and improve their life and in a basic sense, in that four of them are now getting a very good wage. Um, they're getting to enjoy the luxury of this house, even though it's not theirs. Um, is it the fact that this um, rich, well-off family are getting scammed? Are they getting conned? That sort of thing. And then your your brain suddenly turns to this poor guy. In your head at this point, this is just a poor guy that's been stuck down there. How long has he been there? How is he filling his time? What mental state is he in? How horrible must that be? And then you think of the housekeeper and you think, right, she's been separated from her husband. Doesn't get to sleep with him at night. She doesn't get to see him properly. She's worried about him. And she's been thrust out the house with pretty much no notice and sacked. And for the, for the week or however long it's been, she must have been worried out her nut. So your your emotions and your thought process, I think, goes all over the place. And I think that's a really deliberate thing with this film because the director, um, he's, he's quite famous for, he doesn't film, he doesn't he doesn't make a lot, of, there's not a lot of takes in his films. A lot of it's shot first time. Um, he doesn't do a lot of B-roll in terms of uh, to recover shots or recover frames because he basically illustrates and boards the whole film up in advance with storyboards. Every scene every item of background material, every pot, every pan, everything basically in the shot is storyboarded and planned out exactly. And this, the, the, each scene is set up that way. They shoot it, everybody knows what's happening and it's done. So everything it's all very methodical and it's everything is there for a reason. Everything's in a place for a reason. And it is, it's an attack on your senses and an attack on your brain, I think. And it does, like, after the woman falls down the stairs, she, she comments about her being dizzy. And I think I think you're dizzy watching it at this point because so much has gone. You've got so much to think about. No, you're, you're talking there about the meticulous nature of the director's storyboarding. 
I'm going to go to Hugh for this one. I've heard the term Hitchcockian used. Now, what does that what does that mean in a film making sense? Is it that meticulous detail to everything? Mise en scene or what? Like, I've just, I've just, I just threw that out there. I learned that in fifth year media studies. But like, is it is that what Hitchcock Hitchcockian means? Because I've heard it been thrown about a few times, and I'm not really sure if I know what it means. I mean, it's a bit of that. I mean, I, I think Hitchcockian is, is such a catch-all term for. I mean, anything that's kind of like a an enigmatic or unusual thriller, I think you can kind of throw under Hitchcockian. I mean, if you've ever watched, if, if you, uh, how familiar are you, Jack, with like Hitchcock's films? I mean, apart from obviously maybe the big ones like Psycho and stuff. I have only seen the original Psycho right. many, many years ago uh, because one of my friends was into that sort of horror, black and white sort of type of film, but I've never seen. I've, like the birds is about the only one that comes to mind. I know he's, I've listened to podcasts on him, but no, I've never watched much. And I don't think Colin will have either. I don't want to speak for you, Colin, but not sure. But, but you will. Um, <laughs> you're correct. No, they're, they're, I mean, they're, I don't want to steal your thunder here at all, Hugh. No, no, um, no. But there is, there is a couple of nods to Hitchcock throughout the film, more, more probably, more obvious than just a theme or a feeling like stairs are used all throughout the film there's loads and loads and loads of shots of stairs everywhere and that's very it's very prevalent in Hitchcock films um voyeurism is a big thing in Hitchcock films as well and I I believe and I didn't count these I did read this somewhere I can't take credit for it but there's 14 separate shots of people watching people through a window um which again comes from Alfred Hitchcock films and there's also a, a brief glimpse actually in the house of a collection of all these films as well just in the background there's a little easter egg as well yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. I mean, it, it's a catch-all term for a lot of things, but I think more than anything, it's about tone and style. And Hitchcock, most of his films, not all of them, but most of them feature really ingenious plotting, and again, meticulous plotting, and very often come with like a sort of really dark cinematic plot twist. You know, they all seem to have that. Psycho is the best example of of it, isn't it? That's kind of like the original um, sort of gotcha moment in horror cinema. Where it's like you know the the whole film you're built up to believe it's one thing, and then they reveal obviously Norman Bates is is dressing as his mum and murdering people. Right, it's a proper sort of like mind fuck. I think if you've never seen that film before, and especially when you consider when it was made, it really does catch you off guard. But then you you can look at any of his films. You look at North by Northwest or uh, Rope or Vertigo or Rear Window, and it's like the the thing that, that set them apart from their contemporaries was the tone of the film and it always feels they all they all feel of a piece and they all feel kind of off kilter like everything's slightly slightly wrong you know like everything you're seeing which may seem really straightforward or you may be telling a a linear story where point a leads to point b and you know you can follow it like that with no bother but the the, the feel of of everything is just slightly off and slightly wrong um, and I think that's what Parasite has. It has that thing from, as we said, from the opening minutes of like, it's just such a weird, it's such a weird piece. And the tone of the film is so difficult to get your hands on um, that it kind of lends to those sort of Hitchcockian overtones where like, you know, there's something wrong here and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. And even when the reveal is made, as I said earlier, when they do the big reveal at the half, well, past the halfway point, when you find out what's what's in the sub-basement, um, you're on edge for the rest of the film because you don't really know, you've got no way of telling where it's going to go. And again, that's another another big Hitchcock thing where it's like, you mean you may understand the plot 
but you don't really know what, where he intends to take that. And obviously, like, tension, the way Hitchcock would build tension through his films, I think is another great thing that, that marries up well with Parasite. You know, you look at something... I, I think Rear Window is probably is, is probably my favourite Hitchcock. And I, I know it's not a lot of people's uh, number one, but for me it is. I think uh, the performances in it are great. But also, like, the tension in that film throughout is unbelievable. Uh, and, and again, it builds to this wonderful finale. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of that in Parasite, you know, that, that sort of like, as you said, Colin, the storyboarding that he does, I think, is is vital to the way in which the film hangs together. He knows every frame and every shot before he steps foot on set. He knows what he's doing and he knows where it's going. And like years before he would have actually got on the set to start filming this, this would all have been in his head, like as we're seeing it, you know, he knows everything that he's doing. And he's a proper like, a master of the craft. I mean, he deserved the Oscar win that he got. Um, and it's so exciting to see what he's going to do next because obviously you hear lots of different things and I know he's working on a couple of projects and there's the long-rooted HBO spin-off that they've talked about um, that Ad, is um, Adam McKay that's um, that's going to be overseeing that with them. Yeah. Uh, that that all sounds really exciting, but I just want him to get back to making a film. It's like give me give me another another film, give me something. I want to see what what comes next. I think um when sorry Jack, right when you when you talk about like his overseeing of things and how everything has to be perfect in every shot. The house is a perfect example of that because the house is, I, 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 there's not many in film. I think in film and TV, I, I, I always think about Don Draper's flat and Mad Men, and this house is probably my two aspirational places to live. Right, this house is just amazing, but there, there's there's an abundance of amazing houses that he could have picked to film this in and fixed it, but he didn't. That whole house was a set. It's not an actual house at all. The whole thing was purpose-built as a set so that he could basically fine-tune it and have it exactly how he wanted. And that, that just speaks volumes for his eye for this and his levels of standards and how they need to be. Now, I know both of you are Mark Commode fans. I've came round to him the last couple of years. I used to think he was a, a bit of a dickhead, but I did listen to a little bit of uh, the Commode and Mail podcast from a couple of years ago about this where they actually interviewed the director and Mark Commode made a point about the Hitchcockian thing that we're speaking about and he said that he thought it was more Shakespearean any thoughts on that like you know the sort of the, the way the story's told the, I don't know is it a, a distrust of wealth there always seems to be that in Shakespeare you know Shylock is the the, the sort of archetypal bad guy in Shakespeare any thoughts on Commode's comments not my comments by the way I think, I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's another way of looking at the film is just is that it's a tragedy, you know, I mean, yeah. which, is, which is what it is from its opening moments. Um, as I think I said a couple of things, for me, the, the, the thing I take away from the film every time I've seen it is that overwhelming sense of inevitability about it, where it's like, it just feels like it can't end in any other way than the way it does. It can't, the story can't go in any other direction. That these characters are kind of archetypes who are, they're just on this road and this is where you know these actions are going to lead them and there's nothing that's going to take them from it and there's like there's, a, there's an operatic element to it as well and I think a lot of that comes through in the score which the score for this film is absolutely gorgeous oh, it's and fantastic like, yeah. I've had that on my, my Spotify um, for like off and on since I saw it it is absolutely gorgeous um, and like the, the from the sort of the, the piano music that accompanies the, the opening intro and the, you know the closing uh, scenes to the sort of the, the, the crescendo and the build as, as things explode on the screen. So 
yeah, do you know what? Uh, Christ, I'm hardly going to disagree with Mark Kermode if he tells me something's uh, Shakespearean. I'll agree with him it's Shakespearean. Uh, but yeah, no, I can definitely see that reading of it. Who do you think, Colin? Uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm far from an expert in Shakespeare. I think the the closest I've got to Shakespeare in my life is uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. I was and, going to uh, say that. I bet, and, you've, I bet you've watched that. And, yeah. and the fact that Sons of Anarchy is roughly based on Hamlet. Um, but I think a theme across Shakespeare stuff is that there's, oft, there's often two competing families, two people from opposite sides of the tracks, some sort of big crescendo that happens. So I can definitely see the link from my uneducated sort of layman's point of view for sure and um, similar to, to Hugh um, if the good doctor says it then it's spot on Right okay so the sort of second act that this this craziness the, the Kims survive in inverted commas they, they don't get caught basically after this in fact before we get there I want to speak about the sex scene. Oh it's the worst sex scene in movies. It's not, horrendous It's not not putting sexy in inverted commas here because he just seems to be playing with her nipples and rubbing her up over her um, pyjamas. And for some reason, he says, go and put the panties on that you found in the car because that'll make me hard. And then she just says, buy me some drugs. <laughs> Do you think there's a meaning there? Do you think that this is like a bored housewife who just gets full of Valium or whatever? Because the very first time you see her, she's sound asleep out the back garden. As, a, as again, is that just a, a sort of subtle nod towards the director's thoughts on what rich people make up to when they're bored? I think, and I, I don't think it was for me. It was right. a when when they spoke about the panties being found in the car. They spoke about the type of woman that might leave her pants in a car, and it was they basically alluded that it would be a druggie. Uh, taking meth or cocaine or something like that and there was I think genuine horror, despair and fear in both the main characters eyes that the police or somebody might find drug residue in the car I think basically the idea of taking drugs is so far away from these two people's lives that became a little bit of the fantasy part of the role play element of the sex because Do you not think that the the park mother would have good reason to be up to her eyeballs in Valium? Her husband, doesn't, her husband is that power-hungry, mega-rich Korean male. She sits in the house all day while the maid does everything for her. She's fuck all to do. Surely she would be... She could get if she wanted Valium or whatever. Do you not think she's popping pills quite regular? She seems like quite a... She's probably the character in the film that I kind of almost feel sorry for. See, well... This this probably is a really good example of our different ways of thought, Jack, because to me, she's probably the luckiest person in the film, right? Because she's got this big, beautiful house. She doesn't need to go to work. I knew that was coming. Doesn't need to clean. (laughs) Doesn't need to do fuck all. She's got all the traps of this richness and happiness without having to do anything for it, basically. But her son probably likes the maid better. Her daughter likes the tutor better. Would rather spend time with the tutor than go on holiday with the mother. That would be fine by me. You can see the son, he's an (laughs) arsehole. Son's an arsehole. I hated that wee bastard the whole film. (laughs) So it's just a weird one. I think that that's one of the the big points the film is making, though, isn't it? I mean, that's the big thing at Hammer's Home again and again about wealth and about the the, the pursuit of wealth. That Ultimately, it's empty. It's hollow. It's like the, the rock that he's gifted at the start. So you can have all these trappings, you can have this, the gorgeous house, you can have the beautiful clothes, the you know the expensive schools for your children, 
but they're not close. They're not happy. None of, none of that family, none of the parks are happy. Whereas the the Kims, for whatever issues they have, they're, they're really they're a, a close knit family who love each other, and they've got nothing. They're absolutely nothing. And it's only it's in the pursuit of more that they they tear themselves apart. And again, I think that's the the, the fundamental thing going on in the film. It's like aspiration for aspiration's sake is always going to lead to you know absolute demise for them. And that's what happens. It's like they become obsessed with more and more money and getting into the house. And I mean, I don't know how far they were willing to go. There's a point in the film where they ask the mother to provide, oh yeah, could you also get your ID cards and the deeds to the house, please? So I think at that point there's a there is a, an implication like like are they are they going to try and like just completely we'll just like, take people. over their lives? That's yeah. what I was thinking there that they're yeah. just going to move in and be the parks. Yeah, so, but I, I think I especially think... when you when you think about the fact that as soon as the daughter got the job as the art tutor and she negotiated like a double salary, two hours four times a week and stuff like that, the money the son was getting, the money the daughter was getting alone was life-changing for this family already. Absolutely. They could have just sat back, enjoyed that, and they would have completely turned their life around at that point. But you're right, you're spot on you. It was that pursuit of more and more and more, and what else can we do and how else can we get involved, and that's what that's, brought them down. That's why you look at the parks, and it's like, I, I agree with what Jack said right at the start, they are not villains, you know, they're not the bad guys, but they are kind of the example of, well, this is the top. This is what the top is, you know, when you get there. And look at their life, like, I mean, yes, I, I appreciate, like, living in squalor is, is a nightmarish, you know, and I'm sure that they want to better that, that situation. But do you really want to get where they are? Do you want what they ha- really want what they have? Because it's so empty. Like, she she doesn't know what her daughter's up to. Her, you know, her daughter's obviously uh, is, is, is seeing the, 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 the tutor, um, you know, in her bedroom, and she's having an affair with him. Her son is just ripping the piss, you know. As as we said, it's like you know he's um, he he doesn't have any talent, and, and they know that from the off. But like, he's just ripping the bit. There's no closeness there. You look how unhappy they are when they're going away for their big camping weekend. Nobody really, they don't really want to go. They're just miserable. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, like I said, I, I think as as, I said, as the central theme of the film, I think that's kind of it, it becomes clearer and clearer as you move towards the end point that like this is not it's aspiration for aspiration's sake, and it just leads to. You know, pain and torture for them by the end. Well, that's it, like you say, but we're heading towards the end point now, and the Kim family have escaped. But the next day, uh, well, actually, they go back, and there's been a flood, the same flood that has made the family come back from the camping trip because they live at the bottom of the hill. There is sewage pissing into their semi basement flat. It's absolutely destroyed. The rock is floating about. Another bit that made me laugh was the way the shit was spewing out of the toilet. Yeah, it was disgusting. And she's smoking a fag on top of it, the daughter. Yeah. Again, I'm still laughing at that point. I still think that's funny. Like because it, it's like the, it's like not the it's almost like the fucking like the way the toilet goes up and down, it's as if it's on like a, a really bad remote control. <laughs> it just it again just made me made me laugh. But they're obviously in a terrible, terrible situation. They have to go to a local gymnasium to spend the night, but they get a phone call, almost like each individually, um, to ask them to come along to uh, the, the the park's son's ninth birthday party. Yeah. That old, so it's his ninth birthday party. What did you think about this again? What is the the way that this party's arranged? Is that saying anything again about the the superficial nature of wealth that 
it's a case of phoning people up on the day saying, get on your goods and, and, and come around. There's no... I think it... Yeah. Or is it, because the, is it because the camping failed that they've they've had to do that? Am I overthinking? I think, I think it leans towards the idea that their they're rich out-to-do friends are also all super available because their lives are empty as well. Right. Um, it's also a kind of example, I think, of their how much money they've got and what they can actually do with their money that at the drop of a hat, basically, they can have caterers on board, they can have chefs in their house, they can have the whole thing organised in that sh- such a short space of time. And then the the mother hasn't really in the film been your typical, for want of a better expression, your Essex housewife or your footballer's wife or anything like that. She's not really displayed any of that. As soon as the pals start appearing, though, it's all, oh, darling, and cheek kisses, and so glad to see you reverse your Mini Cooper into the driveway and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you do see a slight other side to her as she goes away from being the mother and being the wife to being the being the friend and the show off my house, show off my family sort of thing that she was so keen to do. Um, it's it's a, it's a big change. And you see the same thing with the dad, this straight-faced, middle-down-the-line guy that's never really said a word wrong or did anything out of the ordinary. He's in the bushes with an Indian headdress on. And yeah, but he, he told very specifically that that's his job. <laughs> yeah. He's not there because they like him. You're getting paid extra, mate. You need no, sorry. Him. Sorry, I mean, I mean, Mr. Park that, doing that in the first right, place. Mr. Yeah, Kim, right, okay, yeah. Right. Sorry, Mr. Kim, I beg Mr. Uh, yeah, Mr. Kim doing that in the first place because he's really he's he's not really had much to do with this other than talk to him I, through a walkie-talkie. No, but do, do you not think that's actually quite a that's quite a touching relationship there between the father and the son? I think the daughter is totally fucking up in her room, avoided teenager, off you pop. But the relationship that he's still got with his son, that he will let him camp outside and sleep down the stairs and watch yeah. him. Like, there's a lot of fathers that wouldn't do that. So again, there's a there's just that spark of humility within the the rich people, the the the, the perceived baddies, perhaps, and the and the thing. There's, there's still humanity there, and that's why you don't turn against any of the characters. Immediately, there's no sort of guy with a big scar that every time he walks around the corner, it's pissing the rain <laughs> and there's lightning. Seeing that it is dark and it's pissing the rain like when they're sitting watching their son, but I still think that relationship's quite cute that he's got that time to maybe look after his son. Again, is that a cultural thing where the son's the most important and daughters are sort of second rate, perhaps? I'm not 100% sure. A really, really quick one. Sorry, a really, really quick one that I liked was that there isn't a Korean word for over. When using a walkie-talkie, yeah. it's still just it's still just Korean, Korean, Korean over. Like in fact, I, I wanted to very briefly bring that up: the random use of English phrases throughout the film. Um, that not because though that the the, um, the young boy is meant to be the English tutor, so I think they're just trying out their English on him. Right. Okay. Again. So there's no other reason than that, right? I suspect that because I, I was the same. The first time I watched it, kind of, I was like, why? It was kind of jarring. Like, why, yeah. why is she saying, "Is that okay with you?" And I'm deadly serious here. Mm. I think right, when okay. we back to it again, it's like, all right, it's, it's just him she's saying it to, so it's maybe hard getting yeah. an excuse to try out her English. Right, okay. um, it makes more sense. Yeah. Just, it, just in the build-up to the, the, the final uh, act, like, I, I love the I, I love the, the scene where the, the sewage kind of washes away their home um, as, as they're trying to scurry back to, you know, to, to their, their hovel for the night. It's just... It, <laughs> As metaphors go, it's a it's a wee bit heavy handed, but I like it. You know, like this river of shit washes away their, their, their you know their goods, uh, sort of rising up from the bottom, just as you know the the nightmare that they've uncovered in the house is rising up from the bottom as well. I really like that. 
Um, and also that that, that scene the, the 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 next morning when the parks are in their beautiful home talking about oh isn't it lovely that that horrible rain has uh, has cleared up the the skies today it's broken the you know the weather that we've had and we're going to have a beautiful day now because of it and then it cuts to the kims as you said scrounging for clothes in a charity bin in the the place that they've been forced to stay overnight and the way it jumps back and forth a couple of times to see their their leisurely morning is oh you know let's have a party for the kid it'll be fine oh honey honey you have a lie in you didn't sleep very well last night again back to the kims you know desperately try to like get some stuff together just so they can fucking walk down the street you know in, in some sort of semblance of normality and again coming when it comes just before we get to everything going like absolutely insane it's just another little a little bit to push people over the edge and push the kims further towards like i said the the, the inevitability that's coming and you know the the um the actor who plays uh the uh, is a key tech the guy plays the the, the dad's uh, sang uh, sang kang ho he's just fantastic he is so good in those scenes and you know he's he's sympathetic he's funny when he needs to be throughout the film and you know when when the ending comes and he does what he does again it feels perfectly in character for him as well it doesn't come out the blue it comes out the blue because it's shocking but in terms of following his narrative arc and following his emotional state you can totally see why what happens happens and as i was actually we covered that on the other podcast I'm doing, uh, Vampire Videos, um, we covered a, a, a Bon Joon Ho film called um, oh, Thirst, the vampire, a Korean vampire film. It's terrific. And uh, Sung Kang Ho is, is the dad in that as well. Uh, he's the, the main character in that as well. And I read an interview where he was described in, he's described in Korea as the Korean Tom Hanks, which I absolutely right. love. Colin hates Tom Hanks. But I, I just I, I don't think Tom Hanks is the kind of range that would be required for this kind of film. I can't see Tom Hanks in this. You hate well, Tom Hanks, Colin? I, I, listen, I do. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I do hate Tom Hanks ninety five percent of the time. I like Gump. I like Big, and I very much enjoyed him last weekend in uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Mm. I thought he was great as Colonel Tom Parker. Um, but my problem with Tom Hanks is that. When I watch a Tom Hanks film, I see Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks. He, he doesn't become a character for me the way I think your your top tier actors like your De Niro's and your DiCaprio's and I wish there was another D, but the rest one. Yeah, I just don't. Maybe that's because he's too famous. Maybe he's been doing it too long, and that's the problem. But I just don't don't love him. I know what you mean. I, I, I'm, I'll be honest. I love Tom Hanks. I think he's absolutely terrific. But I take your point, though. At a certain point, an actor just becomes so ubiquitous that they just become the person they are. Yeah. Um, there, there are there are some that my favourite for that is probably Will, uh, William Shatner, who just like for the last thirty years has dined out on just being William Shatner, which is brilliant. You know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. it's what it is. But Tom Hanks, I think um, he's, oh, he's so good in some of his early roles. I think his early comedies in the 80s and 90s and, um, you know, some of the, the more interesting stuff he was trying, like Road to Perdition. Uh, you know, I think he's got a really good range. But, yeah, I, I maybe agree with you in the last maybe five, six, seven years, he's just become Tom Hanks, hasn't he? He's just too famous. Um, yeah. I, liked yeah. the, I liked the children's TV show one he did recently as well. Oh, um, um... He was a lovely like, day in the neighbourhood, a wonderful day in the yeah, neighbourhood. Yeah, that's the one. I thought he was great in that as well, even though he was still just Tom Hanks. But 
I just he's if I was thinking like my top tier of actors, he, he just doesn't get near it. Sadly for me, and people, everybody has the, the same reaction and think I'm an idiot for saying that. But it's just <laughs> it's just a thing. Just uh, really quickly, just while you mentioned that sewage point in the in the apartment, mm. um, I, I really liked how the, out of all their possessions, everything that they own, the one thing they rescued was the rock. Yes, <laughs> and it would go on to play an important role in the rest of the film. Um, well, that's it now. Like yeah. we're, we're getting there, we're, we're getting along the story now. So, the maid and her husband are still down the stairs. We don't know how they're getting on. The only reason that that door gets opened, which leads to the absolute chaos, is because again of a spark of humanity, which is from the Kims saying they must be starving. Go give them something to eat. So again, there's. There's that humanity within almost all of the characters that you, you do feel like, like, right, okay, you're a human being, you're not going to let them starve to death. But turns out um, this kicks off a series of events, Colin, that are... Um, I, I kind of knew there was going to be death at a point, but this was... This was mental, the last 20 minutes here. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. So... The party's in full swing, like you say, the, the door to the basement becomes open. Um, the young son, Kevin, uh, ends up with a rock to the head. I think you assume the worst, that he's dead at this point. Um, that leads to the the housekeeper's husband escaping um, out of there um, and making his way through the party, grabbing a kitchen knife on the way. Um, Jessica, the daughter, ends up stabbed and uh, dead at this point. Um so there's there's just craziness going on. There's people running about everywhere. And this madness has all happened quite quickly. And it does it does slow down very slightly for, for just a couple of seconds for, I think, for you, the audience, and for the characters themselves to take a breath and realise what's going on. And then there's a decision made um, by the father about what to do when his daughter's lying there stabbed, when the... Rich couple's baby, son is injured, needs to go to hospital. There's a decision to be made between him, between Mr. Park and Mr. Kim. And the decision that happens, it leads to um, it leads to Mr. Park getting stabbed, basically, um, by Mr. Kim. Um, is it because Mr. Park wants to look after his son and doesn't care about his daughter being stabbed? Is it because he notices Mr. Park smelling the guy, under, I think that's uh, it, yeah. and that takes him back to the to the talk and the talk about he was, he was when he was when they were under the table, and the parks are on the couch about to have the worst sex on TV on films ever. They talk about the smell of him and how he smells like a an old radish or somebody that rides a subway, and I think that's where right he doesn't care about my daughter. He only cares about his son. He just wants these keys. He doesn't care that this guy's got a fucking bloody face and that he's just stabbed everybody and madness is going around. He's actually taking the time to smell him and look repulsed by the smell of him. And you're right, Jack. I think that is the moment he snaps, Mr. Park gets attacked, and that's when you think, oh shit. It's, it's a very really rational man. Bad now. It's a very rational man. Um, we think that the father, the, the Kim father, is it seems like quite a rational guy, and there's just that one thing. That has been bugging me. He sm- like you says, he's that smell, and he just that's it. The craziness, and he just click. That's him. He makes a snap, second decision to uh, kill the other father, and sneak away again, using stairs down the stairs. He goes out the 
the sort of entrance to the garage. Right there and then, do you, are you thinking he's going to be down to the basement? Are you thinking he's running away? What are your thoughts here? What do you think's happening? I automatically thought that he was, I thought he's away to try and get into that basement. That's where I Did went. Did you really think that? Well, just because I, of the, I, I the way he was going down, just down the stairs, I thought, what's down there? Is the, is the basement? I kind of thought yeah. that's where he's going to try and get to. I'll, I'll be honest with you, Colin, I had that same thought as well. I remember that the first time I saw it, I, I, I felt like, oh God, it's. You know, it's, it's it's that horrible sort of inevitability we talked about a few times. It's like he's going to end up in there, and like the minute he stabbed him, that, that was the first thing that went through my head. It's like oh, he's going to he's going to go to the that's what's going to how this film's uh, going to go. You're both um, smarter than me. Then no. I was totally taken for the ride. No, I, I, um, it was when the boy was looking for him, and you first saw the lights flashing outside the house. Mm. That was when it's and that was when I had my holy shit moment. Yeah, so. That that whole scene, the whole scene at the party where you know, as you said, the madness breaks out. It's it's so perfect. It really is. It's so perfectly constructed, and it's the execution is horrifying. And because there's been nothing up to this point, really. I mean, we had the moment in the basement where like the 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 old housemaid get booted down the stairs. But as you said, Jack, that's that's funny more than horrible. You know, it is shocking because it's quite brutal, but it, it makes you laugh because it's so absurd. You know, the way she goes down the stairs. So when the violence breaks out at the party, and, and you know, like you're seeing people being like knived to death, it's it's genuinely horrible. Um, but it also never forgets that black comedy because obviously the the um, the husband of the housekeeper who started the knifing ends up being skewered through the side, you know, and there's like the sausages sticking out the side of the bars <laughs> yeah. of his you mean dog. Yeah, the dog scene. So it's like, <laughs> even in the midst of that horror, it doesn't forget, like, it knows what it is, it knows its tone, and it, it nails that perfectly. And obviously, I, again, like, the, it's hard to blame Mr. Park for, you know, that panic and looking after his son first, even though his son has clearly just had like a little fainting spell because of what's happened. And he doesn't know, obviously, at that point that Mr. Kim is the the daughter's father, you know. He so to him, he's probably just looking at him thinking, "Well, I pay you money to look after me and my family. Why are you looking after one of the other uh, members of the help that we've hired? You know, your priority should be me." And so you kind of you get Mister Park's viewpoint, and you totally understand it where he's coming from because he doesn't know that the others have this relationship. And then, as you said, that moment, that sniff in the air, which just you know, breaks the spirit of uh, of Mr. Kim and it just totally, like, he just loses control of himself for just a second. Um, you said earlier, Colin, that uh, the description they use of, of him earlier in the film where he smells like a, an old radish. I don't know what an old radish smells like, but that feels like a perfect description, doesn't it? Like, I don't really yeah, know what I, that is. Can't I can't imagine, it. I can't imagine that this couple with a housekeeper in a beautiful house and the best of ingredients <laughs> knows what an old radish smells like either. But... It is. It's, I, I know enough that I don't want to be described as smelling yeah. like an old radish. So. It's a lovely turn yeah. phrase without really knowing what it smells like. But yeah, yeah. Um, so that whole scene is, is genuinely awful and horrifying. I, like, I really mean that. It's, like, it's one of those things, like, even when I was watching it the other night, I found myself kind of bracing for it because, you know, it's even though I know it's coming, it's like, it, it's so horrible and it feels quite visceral. And look, there's a lot of this film that I feel that you can almost, like, smell at times. You know, you can almost scratch the screen and smell it. And that's one of those scenes, like you can smell the sort of the the the, the sort of the metallic of the blood and the, the the barbecue being spilled and the panic in there. You can almost feel yourself there with them. And yeah, and as you said, when he when he escapes out those stairs at the end, 
I, I, I kind of in my head immediately I knew where he was going, even though they kind of they, they you know they played them for a bit and they string you out till the the last couple of minutes. But yeah, I kind of I knew where he was heading. I might have picked up on the Mister Kim heading down to the basement, but I didn't know who was dead and who was alive. So I, I didn't know what was coming next. So again, heading into the last five minutes of the film, there's still that bit of suspense as to who's where, what's happening, who's alive, who's dead, and it sort of cuts to weeks later, Colin and uh, Kibu, who's the uh, the son, uh, son Kim, we'll call him Kevin, um, his English name. He starts to, that this hasn't happened in the film, he starts to like become the first person narrator, basically. So he, he, he does, wakes up. Yeah. It, it's a, again, another another twist, another genre-spanning moment in the last sort of couple of minutes of the film. And what did you think of the last couple of minutes of the film? I thought they were really, really well done. Um, the film had a, a runtime about two hours and 15 minutes or so. And I don't like films that could end three or four different times and they keep it going and keep it going. But they did a really good job of actually summarising what happened in quite a quick way. Um, he wakes up um, in a hospital, obviously getting a bit of brain damage from getting bashed about the head a couple of times with a, a big rock. Um, and he, his only reaction to everything is giggling. Which to me, I thought, oh man, he's proper brain dead. He's going to spend his whole life just giggling and not knowing what's going on. But the narration tells you that he kind of does understand it. But there's a doctor that doesn't look like a doctor, there's a policeman that doesn't look like a policeman, and that's because his brain's not working properly. But it fast forwards pretty quickly to show him and his mum in court. Um, it gives you a, quite a list of the different things they've been accused of. Um, they get away with it, and to a certain term, they get a suspended sentence, and they get out, and he starts telling you about his now, his ambitions because this boy was a promising student, this guy had brains, he was capable of good stuff and hopefully he still is and you, the film sort of ends with the, the almost promise to him and his, to his father through identifying the SOS or the Morse code that the father was using, using the lights outside the house to send this letter to the family, he's picked up on that and he promises to turn his life around and get himself one day in a position where he is rich enough, affluent enough and successful enough to buy that house himself and be reunited with his father. But even then and you know that that is impossible for, especially now he's been up on charges, suspended sentences, all that sort of stuff. No chance that he's going to make anywhere near enough money to get near that. And that sort of dream scene, that sort of fantasy scene, I kind of nearly got duped by it. Nearly got duped by it, and it wasn't until the dad walked out with the exact same haircut. I thought, right, yeah. okay, nothing, nothing's changed here. Right, okay, he's oh. obviously sort of seeing his father as he's seen his father before in this sort of fantasy land. And it's that, it's really that, impactful. Yeah, that that whole scene, that that those final moments have got this really sort of sort of like a haunting sort of melancholia lot about them, you know, and it kind of that that lingers over everything from the moment we fade to black and you know it comes back up and it, it, it the film leaves you with that sort of like it's just it's just a desperately sad tale in the in the end up you know it's like there are no winners there, there are no you know nobody comes out of this well everyone's lost something that they'll never get back again um and I was reading obviously what you're saying there Jack that it's it, it is a, a fantasy scene you know it's like it's it's impossible and Bong Joon-ho was asked about it He's been asked about it so many times, and he always is very, very clear and very blunt about it. Which I quite like in a director. You know, some directors like to be ambiguous and go, oh, you know, it's for the audience to decide." Well, he's very much like, "No, no, no, it's it's a fantasy. It's like it could never be realised." 
Um, in fact, the, the song that plays over the final moments of the film is called A Glass of Soju, but was originally called 564 Years because that's how long that they worked out it would take uh, Kiwu to actually earn enough money to buy the house. That's so like, See, little nuggets like that are fascinating when it comes to just filmmaking in general, man. That's amazing that they've went that far out of their way mm. to drill down and drill down and drill down almost yeah, three yeah. times to get to that meaning. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's beautiful. It's, it's it's such a like I said, it's such a sad and kind of haunting ending. But again, I know I've, I think I've said this like five times, but like it's the thing that I always take away from it is that is the inevitability of it all. It just feels like 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 all great tragedies. It feels like the the minute the film starts, you're on a path that just is is, is inevitable for these characters to end up where they end up, and nothing's nothing could change what's coming. And and that's the I think that's the nature of tragedy, isn't it? It's like. You, you can see even when you can see what's coming you can you know that they're doomed nothing's going to change that fact and yeah it's absolutely tremendous it, oh it was a real treat to go back and watch it because uh, i haven't seen it in about maybe about a year and a half i think and so having the opportunity to go back and go over it for the podcast was was uh, very very enjoyable right so final thoughts no matter final thoughts no matter colin right i yeah. think you were going to you were going to summarize it there anyway so on you go Thank you. Um, basically, what I was going to say was that this is a film that has been heavily, heavily rated by critics. It won the best, the best picture Oscar, and it actually won this in a very competitive year. Um, this won best picture up against The Irishman, um, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Marriage Story, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All absolutely fantastic films, to be fair. And this one, and you know what? The the, the biggest message I can give to anybody listening to this. And anybody you ever speak to about this film, please give it a chance because it saddens me that there's probably a huge, huge, huge volume of people that just dismiss this because I'm not watching that. It's fucking Korean. And it's honestly, it's if, if foreign films aren't your thing, I'll be honest, they're not usually my thing either. This just supersedes all of that. And when you watch it and you pay attention to it, you forget about the subtitles very, very quickly. And I know that's a bit of a... I, th- I think people always say, but it is so, so true. It doesn't matter what language this film is in. It doesn't matter that it's subtitled. It's captivating. It holds your thought long after it's finished, and it's well-deserving of two hours and ten minutes of your time. So if you haven't watched it, please do so. It's on Amazon Prime. There's no excuse well, not to. Well, one final question then. You're speaking there, Colin, about the film being... Um, it transcends and it doesn't matter if you need to watch the subtitles. So I'll ask you both this question. Do you think you could sit down and watch that film without subtitles and understand what it was trying to get at? Because I think even only seen it once, I think I could probably sit and watch that. And okay, you would probably miss some of the nuance, but you would generally understand A, B, C, where it was heading, what was happening. What are your thoughts on that? I think it goes back to what Colin said earlier about the meticulous nature of the director and the storyboarding. It's such a... God, it's such a wanky thing to say, but it's such a visual film, if you know what I mean. And it really is. The dialogue is great, and and that's part of where a lot of the humour comes from. The interaction with the Kim family, I think, is brilliant. And they feel feel like a family, you know? You feel the history of of those characters together. Um, And the performances are terrific. But yeah, I, I do think if you didn't know the, the specifics of what was being said, I think there's there's enough on screen for you to, to, to carry the, the story through. Um yeah, no, I, I think I think you could, yeah. 
Colin? Um, yes, I. It wouldn't be my. It wouldn't be my choice of way to watch it. I of think the dialogue is too important. But I do think, yeah, you, you could watch it. You could enjoy it, and I think you could probably appreciate it. Yeah, um, just going by that, I think totally could, mate. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. didn't. I, I didn't particularly feel myself laughing at the dialogue. It was more the farce. It was more the the physical mm-hmm. comedy almost at times. The hiding under the tables, the ninety degree angles, the bouncing off of ottomans, the, the the things like that that got me more. The only bit of dialogue that really got me was right at the beginning when they were making a toast to Wi-Fi <laughs> or the return of Wi-Fi. They, they actually sat down and uh, almost said their prayers because they got Wi-Fi back. And I, I think that sort of set a marker for the for the whole first half of the film anyway. And again, maybe that's why I got a little bit confused about halfway through as to where where my thoughts should be lying. But I, I did enjoy the film. I wasn't blown away with it. If I go back and watch it, which I, I'll put it on my list, Colin, you know that imaginary list that I've got. Yeah. I'll stick it on there. And if I go back and watch it again, I'm pretty sure that I'll enjoy it more second time round. So mm. final thoughts just to wrap it up then, Hugh. Um, so for, for me, it's... I know the TM gets banded about a lot, but I genuinely think it's a masterpiece. It's one of the it's one of the best films ever made, um, and I think it stands up against pretty much anything in the last ten fifteen years. And look, I mean, to be honest, guys, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a big budget guy, right? I mean, like, don't get me wrong, like, I, I you know watch all the sort of the worthy Oscar films when it comes to Oscar season, right? But I'm like I'm an MCU guy. Like, send me to see the new Spider Man film, and I'm going to be like delighted and buzzing, jumping out the cinema, right? But there's something about a film like this that kind of that, that you you just feel it seep into your your pores when you're watching this film, and you you know as you said it's not caught it's got so much to say as well about the modern world that we're living in that it's it, it's it goes from just being a good film and a great film to being an important film, and yeah it is disappointing to me when people won't give it a go simply because it's a foreign language film because. I don't see that as a barrier. And and as, as, as I say, I see that as someone who's like, I mean, I love populist cinema. That's my thing. I'm a horror writer. I'm a horror critic. You know, I, you know, I, I want blood and guts, gore, violence, madness. That's my thing. But it, just having to read subtitles shouldn't be a, a barrier for, for someone, unless they, you know, they, they have difficulty reading. Because I, I genuinely don't, I just think people don't like the idea of it. And then I think if you actually sit them down and get them to watch it, I, I agree with you. I think it disappears quickly. I think you you do maybe, especially if you're being forced to sit down, you, you can harumph about it a wee bit. Like, you know, you know, you don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be reading a film. But it passes quickly. And then when you get into the rhythm of the movie and the, the feel of what it's doing, like I say, I think it's really enriching. Uh, and I do think it's a film that, 45, 50 years from now, people will still be talking about Parasite. People will still be watching. They'll still be showing it to people. It'll still be appealing at festivals. And I think as a, I think as a springboard for Bon Joon Ho to go on and do more interesting stuff. Let's be honest, he's got the pick of anything he wants to do now. He said that yeah. after the Oscar win. He said like pretty much every studio were like, "What do you want to do? You tell us what you want to do, and we'll just throw money at you." <laughs> and, you can do and that's really exciting because a filmmaker as talented as that given sort of an unlimited budget and the pick of any talent that he wants because, again, people were falling, big actors were falling over themselves to talk about how great it was. I think he the sky's the limit for him and I'm excited to see uh, what he does next. Yeah, absolutely. You want to wrap it up here, Colin? Uh, yeah, um, really quickly because there was something that came to my mind when you were talking, Jack. You talked about how you thought one of the funniest bits at the start was the praise to Wi-Fi. Yes. Um, and that's right at the start of the film. 
And I think that's also got a little bit of a payoff right at the end when you realise, or not the end, but kind of the, the, the third to the third side section where you find out this underground bunker in the rich house has Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> Again, comic like, there's no signal down here. Or yeah, no, Wi-Fi. I, 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 as we're sorted, but we're, we're all right down here. But yeah, listen, it's a great film. Like I say, I found it extremely captivating. And you know what? If you're someone like me that struggles to put your phone down for more than five minutes at a time, watching a subtitled piece like this or like Squid Game or something like that is actually a very good way of actually giving a piece of media your attention because you have to pay attention. You have to keep your eyes on the screen. You can't just rely on the audio cues because you have to actually watch it and read it. And maybe that helps as well with, with how engrossing it is and how into it I was. But I can't remember the last time I watched a movie on a Wednesday night and then watched it again on a Thursday afternoon. So I think that speaks volumes for where I feel this film stands. Yeah, um looking forward to, to revisiting it and see if I can... Look, I was speaking about things here that I didn't actually see. I just read about them. I'm going to be perfectly honest here. Like, I'm always honest with the audience, that our listeners. I mean, I'm not going to kid on that. I'm some sort of um, film film genius. But I kind of think you're about as close as we've ever got to it, Hugh. So I really need to thank you for coming on, man. You added a lot to the show. And just, um, do you want to give our listeners a shout-out to like your Twitter or any yeah. sort of places that you read for? Uh, right for even <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah the easiest place to find me is just on twitter um at angry scotsman 81 uh there's generally links there to everything that i'm doing like i said most of my writing you can find at the london horror society that's kind of where i do most of my stuff uh there's some stuff at a couple of other blogs um i've, all, I've always got something on the go um i just recently had two short stories published one in the sort of the bloody good horror anthology which i'm really proud of that one because it took me ages to get into it so i'm delighted i finally got there um so yeah all that'll be on my twitter the only other thing i'd like to plug is i've got a new podcast starting uh i think we're planning on launching in august the end of august we've kind of we've recorded about 10 episodes and it's called vampire videos so we're kind of me and my co-host dan owen kind of getting guests on each week uh, from some from the horror industry some from other podcasts that we know basically to to look at like 100 years of vampire cinema chat about like so far we've covered like nosferatu let the right one in uh we've got buffy the vampire slayer movie coming up this weekend which i'm looking forward to so it's a lot of fun it's, it's quite a quite a funny podcast so i'd encourage people to check that out and i'm literally just about to take over as the host of like the new podcast 616 which is a big marvel podcast uh from the we made this network so they've kind of approached me oh that, nice so quite excited to i'm a as i said massive marvel geek so any chance to get on in front of a, a pod mic for an hour a week to talk about marvel and that, i'll be there so yeah you can find me there that's that's where i am right we'll stick all that stuff in the show notes so you can just click that links and find the shugmeister anywhere that you wish to but um <laughs> just for coming on uh, again and colin as always, mate, it's nice to speak to you. Yeah, as always, mate, a pleasure. And uh, just imagine if in 10 podcasts recorded already, Jack, good to go. <laughs> Can you imagine us for that? Wow. Um, but yeah, and just, you, thank you so much for coming on. You you made this what it was. And thank you, guys. I, I, I dare say we'll find an opportunity to have you on again in the future, definitely. Aye, so any time. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been excellent. Again, getting to talk about one of my, my favourite films is always a treat. So yeah, any time at all, lads, just let me know. Right, guys, cheers for tuning in. We will speak to you soon.